Thrusting space science into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy. On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month, the International Space Station celebrates its 10th year of human habitation. That's a decade of groundbreaking research into the effects of zero gravity. We are learning a lot about how the human body functions uh, over long duration periods in space, a lot about how to build a very complicated, probably the most complicated vehicle ever attempted in history in orbit and about how to live and work together from different countries, different cultures, different engineering backgrounds. And we are accomplishing a lot of very interesting research and technology development along the way. And we look at some of the first results from the Herschel Atlas program, which has spotted a number of extremely distant objects through the gravitational lensing effect of foreground galaxies. Plus, news of enormous gamma-ray bubbles, lead-ion collisions in the LHC, the youngest galaxy ever detected, the light from which was emitted less than 600 million years after the Big Bang. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. As always, I'm joined by Carolyn Crawford, Andrew Ponson and Dominic Ford. So let's kick off with a roundup of this month's space science news. Dominic, what do you have for us? This is a paper presenting the latest results from the Galaxy Zoo project, which you may recall Chris Lintot talked about on this podcast back in April. This is a project which invites anyone who wants to to visit the Galaxy Zoo website and to look at images of galaxies and to classify what these galaxies look like. And it means that Chris and his colleagues get a fantastic catalogue of the appearances of galaxies and it means that visitors to the website get this awe-inspiring sense that they might be looking at galaxies that no human eye has studied in detail before them. It's a wonderful example of citizen science, isn't it? Exactly, yes. Now in this latest study, visitors to the website were asked to look at spiral galaxies and to say which ones had bars in their centres and which ones didn't. Now, going right back to the 1920s when Edwin Hubble invented the galaxy classification scheme that we still use, it was clear that some spiral galaxies had smooth distributions of matter in their centres and some of them had these strange bar-like features across their centres. And we don't really understand how these bars come about. But what's fascinating is that in this latest Galaxy Zoo study, it's quite apparent that spiral galaxies with bars are statistically more likely to have red colours, and those without bars tend to be bluer. And that indicates that the barred spiral galaxies have older stars in them, and that there's more young stars in the unbarred spirals. So that perhaps suggests that whatever process it is by which these bars come about is also related to the processes that lead to the formation of stars in these galaxies. And that's potentially interesting for our own Milky Way, which we think is one of the galaxies that has a bar. Now, if you're interested in that research, it's by Karen Masters at the University of Portsmouth, and it's accepted for publication in the monthly notices of the RAS. 
Thank you, Dominic. Carolyn, we're going to move away from normal astronomy a little bit here and towards particle physics. You've got news from the LHC. The LHC is the world's highest energy particle accelerator and it's this enormous experiment that's in a huge circular tunnel deep under the French-Swiss border and it's designed to smash tiny particles into each other at high speed and they've spent a lot of their time over the last year smashing protons into each other and that's for the particle physics to look for this elusive Higgs boson that's supposed to give everything mass. But more recently, they've been doing an experiment which is more related to astrophysics in some way, where they're not smashing protons into each other, but lead ions into each other at high speed. So when they smash together head-on, they create these very short-lived fireballs, which are some of the hottest and densest fireballs we've been able to recreate in an experiment here on Earth. We do this... Not because it's recreating the Big Bang, as has been alleged in some of the media, but it's more that we can study some of the physical conditions of this big soup of highly charged particles in the very early universe and how that behaves. You've got things like quarks and gluons that you might have heard too, all interacting with each other. So you've got this kind of this fog of these subatomic particles. And this isn't something we've normally been able to study experimentally. It's something we can only think about and do theory or simulations on. But the fact you have these these fireballs that are created at temperatures of say over a trillion degrees, it's the first time we can actually study experimentally this kind of plasma at these extreme conditions. Conditions. And Carolyn, wasn't there also something else coming out from CERN this month about capturing antimatter? Well, yes, not just antimatter, because we've created antiparticles like anti-electrons, anti-protons before. The exciting thing about this, it is an anti-atom. So it's an, an, a hydrogen atom or anti-atom. And not just that they created it, but they were able to trap it and hold it for about half a second. Now, this may not seem like a big deal, but antimatter usually completely annihilates instantly. And so the fact that you can hold it and trap it holds the promise that we're going to be able to do experiments and be able to study antimatter in greater detail and perhaps get to some of the root of how it differs from ordinary matter and why there's this huge imbalance in the early universe, meaning that we've got a universe made of matter rather than equal proportions of matter and antimatter. Thank you, Carolyn. Andrew, what have you spotted for us this month? Well, I've spotted something about the black hole at the centre of our galaxy. We do actually know from looking at the behaviour of stars at the centre of our galaxy that there has to be a black hole there and it's got something like a mass of maybe three or four million times the mass of our sun. So there's a a big black hole lurking right at the centre of our galaxy. Now, we also know that black holes in other galaxies are actually responsible for incredibly bright emission from those galaxies. Something like 100 times the light from the stars can come just from the black hole at the centre of a galaxy. These objects are known as quasars, and it might sound odd that a black hole can release so much light, given that it's supposed to be black. But actually what's happening is that gas is spiralling in towards the black hole, and as it spirals in, it uh, releases a lot of heat as it gets compressed into a very small region, and that heat comes out as very bright light. So it's puzzled people for a long time. Why is it that uh, some black holes don't emit a lot of light? And in particular, ours doesn't. It, it's, it's not uh, luminous like quasars are. 
So a, a team at Harvard University have been putting together a very careful analysis of maps of the sky in different wavelengths of light. In particular, they're looking at the X-ray sky using a satellite known as ROSAT. They're looking at the gamma-ray sky using a satellite known as Fermi. And they're also looking at the microwave sky using WMAP. That's a satellite that we more commonly associate with looking at radiation from the Big Bang. But uh, in fact, it can also be used to tell us something about our own galaxy, where our galaxy radiates in the microwaves. And by looking in these wave bands, they found very strong evidence for a huge bubble of hot gas emanating from the centre of the galaxy. It's, it's sort of bursting out of the disk of the galaxy, perpendicular to the disk. And this bubble really is enormous. It takes up something like 50 degrees uh, on the sky, which makes it perhaps something like 30,000 light years across. And what they've discovered is that that bubble seems to be consistent with the black hole at the centre of our galaxy having eaten some gas, maybe around 100 times the mass of the sun in gas, around 10 million years ago. So it looks like perhaps the black hole at the centre of our galaxy does feed on gas. It's just it's not doing it actively at the moment, but actually when we look in the right places, we can see evidence for it having eaten gas in the past. Andrew, is there anything else that could have caused this bubble? Could it have been caused by the formation of stars, for example? Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly true that bubbles can be thrown off by galaxies when they form stars very vigorously, so you do have to consider the possibility maybe there were just a lot of stars formed at the galactic centre and that threw off the bubble through supernova explosions and so on, which follow on very quickly from the birth of stars. But actually uh, what this team are arguing, and I think it seems like a sensible argument to me, is that if that were the case, we'd actually expect to see, for instance, many more supernova remnants in the centre of the galaxy than we actually do. So it seems like the evidence does point towards this being a genuinely black hole-related bubble. The other thing, of course, is that the, the edges of the bubble are surprisingly well defined, which suggests that there was a very large and rapid release of energy all at once. And I guess that fits closer to a sudden release of energy from a black hole having accreted some matter and just a very quick episode of energy release. So lots of little events like you might expect in star formation would give you a rough edge to it because you get lots of little explosions rather than one big event. Yeah, it would be a much more staggered release of, of energy rather than if, it was, if these, these huge bubbles were just released from one event. Thank you very much. Dominic, if we can come back to you, we've had a new mathematical idea, a prediction of how many Earth-like planets there should be around, around other stars. That's right. Now, we've often talked on this podcast about extrasolar planets. These are planets orbiting about other stars. And to give an idea of how this field has grown in the last few years, the first exoplanet was actually discovered in 1992. But as of this week, there have been over 490 discoveries, and we can probably expect the 500th discovery to come sometime in the next month. But all of these planets which have been discovered have been more massive than the Earth and most of them have been rather more like Jupiter than like the Earth, and certainly not habitable planets where we might hope to see life. And the reason for that is simply that these planets are easier to detect. They're more massive, and these planets are normally detected by the gravitational influence that they exert on their parent stars. And if a planet is more massive, 
that's a bigger effect which is easier to observe. This is where we see the star itself wobble because it and its associated planet are both orbiting around a centre of mass. That's right. So there's been a lot of anticipation of when the first truly Earth-like planet might be seen from the tiny wobble it would exert on its parent stars. And we probably don't have very long to wait because we've talked on this podcast about the Kepler spacecraft, which is staring at over 150,000 stars. And in the next few years, that will probably announce the discovery of Earth-like planets. But this month, an interesting study was published in the journal Science, which had studied 166 stars around which 33 planets were found. Some of these were already known, some of these were new discoveries. And in this study, the masses of these planets were calculated. And it was found among these planets that low-mass planets were more common than higher-mass planets. And some of these planets were only three or four times the mass of the Earth. And at these low masses, you're seeing more planets than at 10 or 20 times the mass of the Earth. So on those grounds, the authors of this paper predict that in a few years' time, Kepler will be announcing the discovery of somewhere between 120 and 260 Earth-like planets. So that's quite a fascinating prospect for the future. And that's a paper by Andrew Howard of the University of California, Berkeley, and that was published in Science on October 29th. So why is it important? Why should we care about finding Earth-sized planets? Because surely we're interested in all of the other planets that are out there. Well, of course, these planets may turn out to have biospheres, and once we start being able to get spectra of these planets, we can see what kind of atmospheres they have and whether they have any trace of molecules that suggest there might be potentially life living on those planets. Thank you, Dominic. Andrew, if we can just come back to you. We've discovered the youngest galaxy ever detected. Tell me more. That's right. In fact, there there are two different ways you can look at it, either as the youngest or the most distant, because the further we look, the younger the objects are that we see. And the reason for that is just that although light travels very fast, it doesn't get to places instantly. Uh, It travels at a certain speed, and like anything else, the further it has to travel, the longer it takes to get there. So if you look to very distant objects, the light has to have travelled for an extremely long time before it's actually managed to, to reach you. And so you are seeing those objects as they were when they sent out their light, which was when the universe and therefore those galaxies were extremely young. So the news this month is of the most distant galaxy detected yet, and the claim comes from Matt Lennart and his team in France. They've been using ESO's very large telescope in Chile to look for a mission from a galaxy that was previously spotted. So we we knew the galaxy was there. It was spotted by the Hubble Space Telescope. And this galaxy has the catchy name UDFY3813553. They've been targeting that galaxy with the Very Large Telescope and they've been looking for a particular feature in its spectrum. Its spectrum is just the the breakdown of the the different colours of light that are coming from that galaxy and they've been looking for something called Lyman-alpha emission. The reason you want to look for very specific features in those spectra is because you can use those to measure very accurately how much that light has been stretched since it was sent out. Light gets stretched as it comes through the universe as the universe is expanding and stretching. 
So you work out how much the light has been stretched and from that you can put a distance on the object. So the stretch factor for this object is almost 10. It's at what we call redshift 8.6. And that tells us that the light has been travelling for something like 13 billion years. In other words, the universe was just 600 million years old at the time that the light left that galaxy. And so that, if this detection turns out to be correct, is in fact the record holder for the most distant, the youngest object detected yet. So I'm curious about why you say if this detection is correct. Well, for what it's worth, I think it's probably probably is correct, but there are plenty of people out there who are, are casting slight doubt on this. When you're looking for these very faint, very distant galaxies, there's always a risk because you're pushing the technology to its limits. You're working against... Uh, noise that comes about from, for instance, emission in our own atmosphere, which can confuse you into thinking you've seen something that's not there, or just noise in the detector where uh, uh, little electronic fluctuations lead you to think that something has appeared on your image, whereas actually it's it's just a sort of phantom. So th there is some scepticism. The team have tried quite hard to show that actually this signal that they're detecting is too strong to be accounted for in any of these ways. And also, for me, what, what the clincher is, is that we previously detected this object in these Hubble Space Telescope images, and people had estimated, using just the relatively coarse information that comes from the Hubble Space Telescope images, uh, what redshift, how far away this object should be, and had got the same answer. So, so for me, the way that all this fits together suggests that it is a genuine detection. And it's true that there may be other ones in the deep field that may be at a similar redshift and presumably they're going to follow those up as well. Oh, sure, yes. They're trying very hard to find more of these and no doubt the record will continue to increase. Thank you very much, Andrew. We will put references for all of these stories online at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this program, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. This is the Naked Astronomy podcast with me, Ben Valsler, with Carolyn Crawford, Andrew Ponson and Dominic Ford. And now a very new feature for Naked Astronomy, so new that it doesn't yet have a name. If you've got any ideas, let us know by email. That's astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But what it is, is a fast and furious roundup of facts and figures. Everything you need to know about Saturn. Carolyn. Saturn is the second largest planet in the solar system. You could fit about 850 Earths inside Saturn. Saturn is twice as far away from the Sun as Jupiter. It takes Saturn 29 and a half Earth years to orbit once around the Sun. However, one day on Saturn only lasts about 10 and a half Earth hours. Pioneer 11 was the first spacecraft to fly past Saturn in 1979. The mean temperature in Saturn's atmosphere is minus 125 degrees C. Saturn is made up mainly of hydrogen and helium. Except for a solid core of rock and ice of five Earth masses. The density of Saturn is lower than the density of water on Earth. It would float like an apple if you could find a pool large enough to hold it. Saturn's radius is 6,300 kilometres more at its equator than at its poles. 
The winds in Saturn's atmosphere can reach velocities of over 1,000 miles an hour near the equator. Saturn's rings were first observed by Galileo in 1610. And they extend from 6,630 kilometres to 120,700 kilometres above Saturn's equator. But they average less than 100 metres in thickness. Saturn's rings are not solid, but they are composed of many individual ringlets. And in fact, they're made up of billions of particles of ice and rock, ranging in size from dust grains to small boulders. Recently, a colossal new ring was identified around Saturn, stretching 50 times further into space than the more familiar rings. Saturn's rings are thought to be made from the debris created when a small moon was torn apart by Saturn's gravity about 100 million years ago. In fact, Saturn still has over 60 moons in orbit around it. But only 13 of these are more than 50 kilometres across. Saturn's largest moon, Titan, is actually larger than the planet Mercury. And it's the only moon in the solar system to have a thick atmosphere. Titan has a rainfall cycle with clouds, rivers and lakes. Not of water, but of methane. And we know that because Titan is the furthest celestial body in which we've managed to land a spacecraft. Saturn's moon Mimas has an impact crater that stretches across a third of its surface. If there were a crater of an equivalent scale on Earth, it would be wider than Canada. Saturn's ice moon Enceladus reflects almost 100% of the sunlight that strikes it. And ice jets erupt from under the icy surface of Enceladus and eject water vapour, gas and grains of ice into space, hundreds of kilometres above the moon's surface. So these ice geezers produce Saturn's faint but extended E-ring. Saturn's moon Iapetus has one face that is almost as bright as snow and another as dark as coal. There are even more factoids on our site at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. But if there's a topic that you would like to get the high-speed lowdown on, do get in touch. Astronomy at thenakedscientists.com We'll be celebrating the 10th anniversary of human habitation on the International Space Station soon. But first, Andrew, we have a question from Matthew Arnott. He wants to know what would happen if you get sucked past the event horizon of a black hole and then the black hole evaporates. Well, I think this question has to win an award for about the hardest question we've been asked so far <laughs> on, on Naked Astronomy. We can recap quickly because we, we've spoken about black hole evaporation, uh, I think, on, on the previous podcast. In classical physics, uh, a black hole just sits there. So once you've thrown enough matter together into a small enough space that you've created a black hole, a, a region of space where the gravity is so strong that light can't get out, the black hole just sits there. It, it can get larger by throwing more stuff in, but it could never get smaller again. But... What Stephen Hawking realised is that quantum physics changes that picture. When you add quantum physics into the mix, you find that black holes slowly evaporate. So very, very slowly, uh, they lose their mass again. And if you leave them in total isolation for long enough, they will evaporate completely without a trace. And it will be as though the black hole were never there in the first place. Now, the question is, if you yourself jump into the black hole just before it, it evaporates, then do you somehow get back out again? Uh, do, you, do you survive your trip through a black hole? Well, the, the trouble with answering that question is that nobody really understands this process in, an, in enough detail to, to give you a, a straight answer. It relates to something called the information paradox, in fact, which ultimately is not going to be resolved until we have a fully functioning theory of quantum gravity. This is perhaps one of the greatest challenges for physics in our generation. 
And although we have some ideas about what a theory of quantum gravity might look like, they are just ideas, so we can't come up with definitive answers at the moment. So all I can really say at the moment is that you can look at how in our current descriptions mass does leak out of black holes. And one way of thinking about this process is through something called pair creation, where particles, in, even in a vacuum, little particles are, are constantly popping in and out of existence. And so uh, even if there's nothing at all in a box, if you look close enough, you'll see tiny particles of, of matter and antimatter constantly being created. And then they come back together and they annihilate. And so overall, it's as though they were never there. Whereas if you think about that process right next to a black hole, what can happen is that one of the particles can fall into the black hole and the other particle can escape because if, if one of them happens to be thrown into the black hole, it can never come back to the one that's outside the black hole. By the definition of a black hole, nothing can get out. So what happens is, say, if the antimatter falls into the black hole, it annihilates some matter inside the black hole. The matter part of, of that pair of created particles escapes into the normal universe, and it's as though the matter had actually escaped from the black hole. But... If you're inside the black hole, what you actually find is that you're slowly being eaten away by these antimatter particles streaming in at you. So it's not like you yourself really get out of the black hole. Uh, the total mass that made you up does get out of the black hole, but it doesn't really look like uh, any semblance of the human being that is you does get out. So I, I don't really think this is a practical mechanism for surviving a trip through a black hole. But as I say, we can't say for certain until we understand quantum gravity. So even if the black hole does evaporate, it's still not a happy ending. I'd say not. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Carolyn, we've had one from LH Collision on Twitter. He wants to know, when viewed from the side, why galaxies appear to be almost flat? And he's asking if there are any spherical galaxies. Well, yes, it's very important to note, first of all, that not all galaxies are flat. In fact, the majority, over 60%, are spherical or kind of ball-shaped galaxies, maybe not completely round, some maybe more elongated. And these are known collectively as elliptical galaxies. And we tend to sometimes forget that there are so many of them out there because they're somewhat less photogenic than the spiral galaxies. So they don't tend to grace the coffee table astronomy books quite as much as all the beautiful spiral galaxies out there. But the spiral galaxies are flat or disc-shaped because they are rotating. And this is the key thing it's or more it's a system of things rotating whether it's stars or gas clouds and early on this rotation means you've got all these things jumbling together there are going to be collisions and the collisions between objects act to average out their speed or their velocity in practice so if everything is rotating the same way around a center the collisions don't actually f affect that forward motion but the collisions will act to average out the vertical velocity. So things may be moving in and out of this disk, but through all the collisions, that component will get averaged out to zero, and so things will flatten out. And this is a characteristic we see of many rotating systems, whether it's the protoplanetary disks, you know, the cocoons that go on to form planetary systems. Planetary systems are all in a flat disk around their host star, or whether it's just the rings of Saturn. We just had that in our factoid explosion. These are all spinning systems where the collisions have been averaged out and you end up with a very, very flat system. 
Thank you very much. And thank you for your question, LH Collision. Of course, if you'd like to get in touch with us via Twitter, you can get in touch with all of the Naked Scientists. That includes us here at Naked Astronomy by tweeting at Naked Scientists. And we'll be answering more of your questions later in the show. But now... The International Space Station has been inhabited for a decade and it's allowed us to undertake research that would formerly have never been possible. I spoke to Kelly Humphreys from NASA's Johnson Space Centre. The International Space Station uh, celebrated its 10th anniversary of human habitation on November 2 of this year. Uh, When they crossed that anniversary mark, they had traveled 1.5 billion miles in its travels around the Earth, uh, which equals about eight round trips to our sun. One of the biggest things that we have learned is how to have humans from different countries, different cultures, different engineering backgrounds work together to help one another out. We are learning a lot about how the human body functions uh, over long duration periods in space, a lot about how to build a very complicated, probably the most complicated vehicle ever attempted in history in orbit. And we are accomplishing a lot of very interesting research and technology development along the way. Now, obviously, no one astronaut has spent 10 years on the station. How long do they spend each when they go up? Each astronaut crew spends roughly around six months, uh, depending on the vehicles that are going up and coming down at exact timing there. But the normal stay for a space station expedition crew member is about six months. Could you give us an idea of what life is actually like on board? What sort of conditions do they live in and how often do they get to speak to their family, for example? Well, you know, it's changed a lot over the years in that as we first started building the space station, it was a lot smaller. We just had a couple of modules and uh, very little space on board. But now it's about the size of a five-bedroom home. It's got two bathrooms. It's got the ultimate gym that allows the astronauts and cosmonauts to work out and stay fit. Uh, And it has uh, probably the best bay window in the universe, a 360-degree cupola that overlooks the Earth below. So it's a lot of that is uh, day-to-day activities, the same kinds of things we do here today. Everybody has to eat and drink, and they have to get up and go to work, and they have to have time to talk with uh, friends and family on the ground. In addition to regular communications we have for operational purposes, which are primarily radio-style communications that go either through satellites that are at geosynchronous orbit or through ground stations, uh, we also have the ability to uh, send and receive email with the crew members, transfer large files back and forth. They get the newspaper sent up to them every morning so they can keep in touch. They have an IP phone on board so that they can call down to anybody they want to on the Earth. And let me tell you, it's a big thrill to get a call from somebody on the space station at any time. I've had the (laughs) pleasure a couple of times, and it's really neat. They also have uh, an onboard Internet capability. Uh, It's kind of slow, more like the old uh, 300 to uh, 1400 baud style communications. Uh, Those of us who are old enough to remember that had when you were using modems. But they are actually able to interact directly with the Internet. The slowness is is a, a byproduct of the security measures we have to keep to make sure that no viruses get on board. So it really is almost like being at home, but obviously you're out in orbit. You've mentioned that we've been observing and researching the physiological impacts. What impact does it actually have on the body to be in orbit for six months? 
Well, I'm going to vastly simplify this. There are a lot of different impacts. But some of the chief things that we struggle with is trying to make sure that we don't have bone and muscle density loss. Your body, when it does not have gravity pulling down on it, tends to atrophy, especially your lower limbs, your legs, your feet and legs. And so uh, what we do is try to do countermeasures in which we have various pieces of exercise equipment on board. We have stationary bicycles. We have treadmills that pull you down with bungee cords so that you try to approximate one gravity on your footfall, which is what uh, we're learning really makes a difference in whether or not you have bone density loss, which is serious, similar to what folks on Earth that get osteoporosis deal with. Muscle density loss, we combat that with uh, rigorous exercise on uh, what we call the advanced resistive exercise device, which is essentially a a set of uh, stretchable uh, cables, uh, and those allow them to mimic the effects of weight lifting even in the absence of gravity that would allow you to do that for real. So obviously understanding how life copes with that environment is very important, but it's not just human life that's been looked at. There have been some very interesting experiments on plants. How's the ISS help with that? You know, we're looking at a variety of different things on plants. Uh, There's an experiment up there right now that is looking at the relative importance of the proximity of water and the need for gravity uh, in how roots develop. This new experiment is looking at the relative importance of those two inputs to the plants and how they grow. In addition, we're doing some work with things that could help us in the area of green technology. Uh, There's a plant called uh, Jatropha uh, that produces an oily bean as a fruit. It's very uh, uh, prevalent in Florida, Uh, and we have sent samples of that up there to see if there's anything we can do through weightlessness to identify how we might be able to improve the fruit-bearing qualities of the plant because it doesn't bear as much fruit as as would be helpful in terms of using that plant's seeds or nuts to uh, develop alternative fuels. And so we're looking at things like that as well. Clearly, for 10 years, it's been invaluable to our scientific knowledge, to our research, to our understanding. What do we expect to see in, say, the next 10 years? Well, you know, some of the things that we, and I, and I have to preface this with the fact that we are only now really beginning the full utilization of the space station. The first decade has been marked with a focus on completing the assembly of the space station and science being able to be conducted in our off time. We're now, once we are about to go to the assembly complete uh, level, uh, we'll be able to begin the full utilization of the station, which will get us up to about eight hours a day of scientific research on any given day. We're up to a crew of six, so we've got enough people that can maintain the station, take care of all of the day-to-day activities with, that we're able to devote more time and effort to science. We just got the last laboratory facilities delivered to the space station on the most recent space shuttle mission, and so we have a full complement of those facilities. We, at this point, have made some very interesting discoveries. A couple I'll pull out for you is the idea of microencapsulation of drugs. There was an experiment done. It was hypothesized on the ground that you could make these microencapsulation things that would allow you to deliver drugs to uh, more precisely to their targets. 
everybody's familiar with chemotherapy for for a variety of different cancers. One of the problems with chemotherapy is that when you deliver the chemotherapy, you're delivering it to all the cells in the body, not just the cancerous cells. These micro balloons, as they're called, can allow you to deliver the cancer treatments directly to the cells that are affected. Uh, in this particular case, it was uh, cancer of the prostate that was done, and they had some good success with that. Another very interesting finding was that as uh, some bacteria go into orbit, they become actually more virulent or more disease-causing. We took salmonella up, and they determined the gene that was responsible for turning on and off this additional virulence, and it's similar to what turns it on and off when it gets into your intestines. And there's actually a vaccine now that is getting ready for clinical testing in humans for salmonella, which is essentially food poisoning. So those are a couple of early successes we've had, and we look forward to more successes uh, along those lines. And the other thing about it is that it's all about the unknown unknowns. There's a lot of serendipity involved, and when scientists go up there and do their experiments, they find things they did not expect. The unique capability of the space station is that when scientists find something they didn't expect, they can refly new samples, redo their experiment very quickly, and be able to uh, enhance the experiment, refine the details of what they're looking for, and come back with more quickly. Just lastly, we've obviously learned a lot and are learning a lot about humans, about life in orbit, and about how we cope with those conditions. But can we also use the space station to probe the universe itself? Can we do more astronomy there? Well, as a matter of fact, on the uh, space shuttle mission that's currently scheduled to go up in February, we're going to be taking the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer, which is uh, developed by uh, Samuel Ting from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And we're going to install that on the exterior of the space station and begin looking uh, for dark matter, uh, which is considered to be one of the, uh, the most prevalent substances in the universe, but it's very hard to track. Uh, and we've been working with uh, scientists around around the world to develop a very sensitive instrument that's capable of running for a decade uh, to really try to get a good handle on exactly how much dark matter is in the universe and how it affects the matter that we're all familiar with in the universe. So in that respect, the space station is getting ready to become a very powerful astronomy tool. NASA's Kelly Humphreys explaining how the ISS has been inhabited for 10 years and is now moving forward into a new phase of its life as a powerful astronomy tool. Just the idea of having salmonella in space just sounds... Oh, my God. That could, you can't think of anything worse, can you? <laughs> Certainly bad enough down here with gravity, let alone being trapped in, in a small metal can above the, the Earth with horrendous food poisoning. Yes. And, and no privacy whatsoever. Of course, it would be terrible. Um, speaking of humans living in zero gravity, we've had an email from Aaron Thomas. Dominic, I'll put this one to you. He's asked if there's a region of zero gravity in the centre of the Earth. Yes, that's right. At the centre of the Earth, the Earth's mass is distributed all around you. And that means that the gravitational pull from each part of the Earth's mass is pulling you in all different directions. And those forces cancel out to leave no net gravitational force on you. So at the centre of the Earth, you do feel no gravitational pull at all. And that's only completely true exactly at the centre of the Earth. If you move slightly to one side then there's slightly more mass on one side of you than on the other, and that means you'll feel a slight force pulling you back towards the centre of the Earth. 
Now, you can mathematically work out how the Earth's gravitational field changes with depth, and the answer turns out to be that the gravitational pull is proportional to your distance from the centre of the Earth. So, for example, if you're 10% of the way out from the centre of the Earth to the surface, you feel about 10% of the gravitational pull that you feel here on the surface. But there is a large volume of space inside the Earth where the gravitational force is much weaker than what we're used to on the surface. But assuming that even all of the gravity from Earth itself cancels out in this one place in the centre, would you still feel the pull of the Sun and the Moon? Yes, you would still feel the pull of the Sun and the Moon. And, in fact, we on the surface feel the pull of the Sun and the Moon. But we're not used to the Sun rising in the east and us all feeling pulled to the east and the Sun setting in the west and us all being pulled in the other direction. And the reason for that is that the Earth is in orbit about the Sun. And so the Earth is in free fall towards the Sun and that's pulling it in an orbit once a year about the Sun. And thankfully we are also in that orbit, so we stay on the Earth going around the Sun every year. Now, if you were at the centre of the Earth, you would likewise hope to be going around in the Earth's orbit in free fall together with the Earth towards the Sun, and that means you would not appreciate that force because it was acting equally on the Earth. So if you were sat there at the centre of the Earth enjoying your zero gravity, you would just float there at the centre of the Earth. I'm not sure you'd actually enjoy the centre of the Earth. I gather it's quite hot down there. (laughs) I think you might need a good spacesuit. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much. Andrew, we've had an email from Gordon Kubank. He finds it hard to believe that the speed of light is really an absolute speed limit. In particular, he's asking about the way that we use something as a reference point to measure speed against. Could you help him out? Yeah, um, it's a a good question because speed, of course, we're told in physics classes is supposed to be relative and This becomes especially clear in space, for instance. If you imagine a spaceship moving past a planet at something like, I don't know, 20,000 miles per hour, then in space where you've got nothing else to refer to, that's actually indistinguishable from the spaceship staying where it is and the planet moving past in the opposite direction at 20,000 miles per hour. And it's absolutely right that the physics does tell us that those two things are indistinguishable. So I think what this question is getting at is that since the actual speed that you assign to any object depends on what reference points you use for assigning that speed, how can there be a speed limit? Now, the key to answering that question is recognising that in physics, one plus one does not equal two. In fact, uh, one kilometre per hour plus one kilometre per hour actually equals 1.999999... Oh, I'm going to have to do that again. 1.999999999 kilometres per hour. So it's very close to, but not quite, two kilometres per hour. And this odd rule of addition comes about from something called Einstein's special relativity, which actually starts from Einstein's insight that experimentally we found that the speed of light is always the same, regardless of what speed you happen to be moving at, and and then tries to move beyond that and incorporate these ideas of how speeds can be relative. And the inevitable conclusion of that is, as I say, one plus one does not equal two. And if you keep increasing your speed in 
increments of, say, one kilometre per hour, it gets harder and harder. You think, uh, from your point of view, that, that each time you fire your rocket, you're getting faster by one kilometre per hour. But anybody watching you on the ground finds that your total speed increases by less and less each time you fire that rocket. And in fact, you never get past one billion kilometres per hour, which is the speed of light. Thank you very much, Andrew, and thank you, Gordon, for your question. If you've got any questions or comments for us, you can get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from The Naked Scientists. Earlier this month, the Herschel Atlas, that's the Astrophysical Terahertz Large Area Survey Project, published some findings in the journal Science. They had identified a number of galaxies that are acting as gravitational lenses, effectively acting as a zoom lens to give us a glimpse of incredibly distant galaxies. Loretta Dunn, Principal Investigator of the Herschel Atlas Project. The reason we... We made the, the Herschel Atlas survey, which is um, the largest survey that Herschel is conducting. It's going to look at very large areas of sky, which is 550 square degrees. Now, just for comparison, the moon is something like half a degree across. So this is a really huge area of the sky. And we wanted to do this because the bands that Herschel studies are the far infrared and submillimeter part of the spectrum, which is out beyond the infrared, more into the microwave region. And what we're seeing there is not like from stars. It's actually radiation from very tiny dust grains in galaxies, just small solid particles, a bit like the soot or the particles in cigarette smoke. And this cold material, it just radiates at these long wavelengths because it's only a few tens of degrees above absolute zero. So with Herschel, we're actually looking at a completely different component of the makeup of galaxies. We're looking at the gas and dust material in galaxies and not the stars. And this has never been possible before over such a large area of sky because uh, in order to see these, these wavelengths, you have to be in space. The atmosphere absorbs them very efficiently. And so Herschel is um, the largest space telescope now. It was launched in May 2009. And it's given us the opportunity for the first time to really explore this part of the spectrum and just to find out what's, what's out there. So we wanted to do a large survey because that's how you really figure out what the universe is made of in these, in these wave bands. As part of that, we knew that we'd be very good at picking up rare objects, so objects that, unless you knew where to look, you, you wouldn't find them if you only looked at a small area. So by looking at a very large area, these rare objects would pop up. And uh, one category of rare objects we, we hoped to find, we had a prediction from a, a, a model, was these strongly lensed galaxies, strongly gravitationally lensed sources. And that's where we have just the right chance alignment of a very distant background dusty source in the distant and early universe just happened to be lined up with a much closer massive galaxy and that nearby massive galaxy acts as a, a gravitational lens so its mass bends the space-time around it and causes the light from the distant galaxy to be curved in its path towards us much like uh, you know, a glass lens curves the, the path of the light that passes through it. And that allows the background galaxy, basically, it becomes magnified, it becomes distorted in its size and shape, and it becomes brighter. That means it's much easier for us to study those distant background galaxies because they're much easier for us to see. And uh, the, the paper that appeared in Science last week, if you like, was our test field. It was a very small part of our survey, only 3% of the final area. 
but in there we were able to sort of test out our method for finding these lenses and to prove that in fact Herschel was very efficient at finding such objects. So as well as seeing an unprecedented amount of the sky in wavelengths that we've not really been able to observe before we're seeing these unusual gravitationally lens things that are almost acting like a zoom lens to see things right back quite close to the big bang i mean how far away are the objects that we're seeing at the moment that the range of redshift well, the range of distances that we've got are kind of taken us back to something like three or four billion years after the big bang so 11 billion years back in time from where we are today so we're right out to you know when the universe was probably only a quarter of its present age. And at the moment, we've, we've only found five of these strong gravitational lenses in our current test patch of sky. But we will finally have sort of 30 times that area in the final survey. And we, we expect to have something like 100 or 200 of these uh, lens sources in that final sample. And we, we, in principle, could see sources even further back, even farther distances. It's just that we've only got a small sample to start with. The promise is that we could see galaxies right back to within one or two billion years from the Big Bang. Have you been able to direct other telescopes to have a look at these regions where you're seeing the lensing to confirm or perhaps to take additional measurements of them? Yes, in fact, because Herschel alone doesn't confirm that they're lenses. I mean, there's certain signatures with the Herschel data that we look for, a very bright source, and a source that we would say had a red colour. That means it's, it's brighter in, in the longer part of the Herschel um, wavelength range than the shorter part. That gives us a clue that it should be a gravitational lens, but that's not proof. We do have to follow them up with other telescopes in order to get that, that final proof. The other telescopes that we've used are, we've used the Keck telescopes on Hawaii, and there we've, we've used those to, to make detailed imaging of the of the starlight in the, in the nearby galaxy, in the foreground galaxy, that's the one that's actually acting as the lens. And that means that we can properly, if you like, model the, the light of the foreground galaxy and, and check out what type of galaxy it is and what its mass is in order for us to, to make a model for the lens in. And then we also need to look at the, the background source in more detail. And we've done this in two ways. One is to, is to image it in higher angular resolution because the Herschel telescope is great at looking at large patches of sky but its angular resolution isn't that great it's, it's a three and a half meter mirror but that means our highest angular resolution at the wavelengths we detect these objects in is something like 18 arc seconds which means everything pretty much looks like a blob uh, and uh, in order to see the lens structure you know whether we've actually got multiple images that's a, a typical sign of lensing is where your your background object is, is split into several images or a ring and in order to look for those details of the, of the structure of the background galaxy, we needed to make a higher resolution image, but of the dust. So we went to a telescope called the Submillimeter Array, which is in Hawaii. And there, there are several dishes that are joined together that can take higher resolution images. So the resolution of maybe an arc second. And there we were actually able to see uh, multiple images of the background galaxy, which is, again, it's a strong signature that the, the galaxy is actually lensed. And furthermore, we were able to make measurements of the, the distance, the direct distance to that background galaxy using um, a line of carbon monoxide gas. So that within our, our dusty galaxies, there's a lot of gas. And the carbon monoxide molecule creates a spectral line of emission in the radio part of the spectrum. So we could find that spectral line. And, and much the way that people do with optical spectra, you find a particular element 
you look at the position or the wavelength of that line from your galaxy, and then you compare it to what you would measure if, if that line were on Earth and, and not moving relative to you, and you measure what we call a redshift. And that means that if the distant galaxy is moving away from us, its spectral line is, is shifted towards the red part of the spectrum. It's moved to longer wavelengths. And that tells us basically very directly that that background galaxy is actually much, much further away than the big foreground one that we can see uh, with the Keck telescope. Would you expect the lensing to degrade the image sufficiently for you to not really be able to take much more information out? No, in fact, the, the lensing effect, it, it actually makes the galaxy appear larger. Um, so it stretches the image out. I mean, it does distort it. So it won't look like a regular galaxy. It'll kind of be stretched out in different directions. But that's stretching out if anything, makes it easier to study because you can see regions that before would have been too small for you to resolve with your telescope. It would have all sat on top of itself. And it, it stretches them out so you can actually see structures much smaller than you would have been able to see otherwise. The redshifts of the, of the gas are really not affected by the lensing process. They still appear to be at the, at the same redshift they would have been. You have to try to reconstruct your image if you really want to say anything about that that lens galaxy and maybe like its size or its shape you have to make a model of your lens so you have to try to estimate the the way that the mass of the foreground galaxy is distributed and how it would act on light from a background galaxy so you have to try to create sort of like a geometric model of your of your system and then reconstruct what your original background galaxy would have looked like had it not passed through the lens. And that's quite a complicated process, and uh, we do have people who are, who are working on that. But currently, we, we could really do with some Hubble Space Telescope data as well to try to get higher resolution imaging of both the foreground and the background sources. And we do have some time to do that. We just don't have the data just yet. But the, the lens in itself, it does complicate the interpretation of your background galaxy because it has all been stretched out, but it does actually aid us in, in investigating these distant galaxies rather than hampering it. It allows us to see things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to see at such huge distances. If we're modelling the lensing effect as well, does that mean that we're actually learning more about the way that these foreground galaxies interact with space and perhaps the presence of dark matter? Yes, yeah, that's exactly the, that is the sort of two sides to the science that we can do with the lenses. One is studying the background uh, distant galaxies in more detail, and the other one is, is using the foreground galaxies as um, ways of us tracing their dark matter and normal matter, so the star and gas component, because you, you have to put both of those elements in in order to create the image that you see in the lens. And that is, again, it's a goal of the, of the project to map out the dark matter and normal matter content in a large selection of these foreground galaxies because you know we'll have quite a large sample of a few hundred at the end of the day and they will span quite a range of cosmic history as well our foreground lenses tend to be found at larger distances than similar objects in other optically based surveys this means that we can hopefully even study the evolution of the dark matter and normal matter components of galaxies with with time to see whether things have been changing as you go back to earlier times. So it's not something we're able to do right now with our small initial sample, but it's something we're planning to do in the longer term with the survey as a whole. It uh, certainly sounds like you're going to have your work cut out over the next couple of years. I, we are, yes, we've been incredibly busy for the last year since we, we got our first little piece of data about a year ago, and that has occupied many of us. There's, there's something like 150 people involved in, in the project 
uh, we have a, a wide range of people with different interests and, and everybody has been able to to find something interesting in this first data set and we're you know we're hoping that sometime after Christmas we'll have ten times the area of our test field to, to start furthering the things that we'd found there and, and finding more more exciting stuff and then sometime by the end of next year we'll be completing our observations and able to look at the, the picture as a whole. But it's going to, I mean, I think this data set is going to keep many astronomers busy for many years to come because, um, you know, Herschel itself, uh, the capabilities of Herschel are not going to be surpassed for, for many, many years. We're not going to have another mission that can do better than Herschel for probably the next 10 years. That was Loretta Dunn from the University of Nottingham. Atlas is quite an, an impressive survey. But actually, plans have been put forward for an even larger survey with Herschel. This would be something called the Herschel Legacy Survey. It would cover something like 4,000 square degrees of the sky compared with Atlas, which is more like 400 square degrees of the sky. And, of course, there, there are many advantages to just going larger. You get a better sample of objects, and you can start doing things like combining the data on such a large scale with data from the currently flying Planck telescope to uh, get even better constraints on things like cosmology. As Loretta said, we're probably not going to have technology any better than Herschel for doing this for 10 years or so. But surely the lifespan of Herschel is limited. It's going to run out of coolant eventually. That's right on on both counts. Herschel is going to be the last word in this kind of far infrared band for a long time. So if this larger survey goes ahead, it will eat up a lot of time that could be used for other projects. So it's got to be balanced against that. And I don't think, as far as I know, that a decision has yet been made on whether to do this larger survey or not. Thank you very much. We'll have to uh, keep an eye on it. Carolyn, we've had a question from Rob Peck, and he wants to know how a neutron star, which is, of course, made from uncharged neutrons, how can it have a huge magnetic field? Well, just to remind everyone, a neutron star's formed when you have a very massive star, much more massive than our own sun, and it runs out of fuel at the end of its life, and then it begins to collapse inward on itself under gravity. And as this happens, gravity is strong enough to overcome the nuclear force that would normally keep protons and electrons separate and they get squeezed together to form neutrons. And the star keeps collapsing, turning the matter into completely neutrons until the gravity can squeeze it no longer because neutrons resist being squeezed at some point. There's something called degeneracy pressure where they can exert an outward balancing pressure to the gravity. And at this point, you've compressed something that was originally a really massive star, much bigger than our sun, down into a region about 15 kilometres across. So not only are neutron stars incredibly dense, as the saying goes, if you had one teaspoon of neutron star material, it would have a mass of well over a billion tonnes. It also means they rotate incredibly fast because if the star originally had a little bit of rotation about it, conservation of angular momentum means as it shrinks, the star will spin up ever faster. And some of these objects are rotating at 100 times a second. But similarly, any magnetic field in the star remains frozen in the star and becomes much more concentrated as the mass shrinks. You've got the same magnetic field lines coming out of the surface, but if the surface itself has shrunk, that means the magnetic field has got a lot more concentrated. So what you end up with is a very dense, rapidly spinning bar magnet that is the neutron star. So the question is, of course, if you're going to keep this magnetic field going, you need some degree of electrical conduction present. And this could be hard in a star that's comprised entirely of neutrons. If it weren't for the fact that neutrons do undergo spontaneous decay 
every so often. It happens rarely for any individual neutron, but if you have a whole star packed full of them, it happens often enough that neutrons can decay to protons and electrons. And this happens more at the upper layers where it's slightly less dense. So that means that there is a steady repopulation of charged particles, protons and electrons being produced, particularly in this outer shell or crust, the neutron star. And it's that area of the star that ends up having very good electrical conductivity. And of course, you need these electrically charged particles because, as we know, some of these neutron stars channel out these particles along jets directed along the poles of the magnetic field to form pulsars. And, you know, these charged particles moving the magnetic field create radio waves and when the signal clips around us, we hear a pulsar. So it's surprising, but neutron stars are not electrically neutral. Thank you, Carolyn. And finally, Dominic, could you answer this one? This is from Martin Elbin. He asks if we need to have dark matter to account for the way that the Milky Way rotates. Yes, we do. Now, in the 1970s, evidence for the existence of dark matter came out of studies of the rotation of galaxies like the Milky Way. And if you look at a galaxy on the sky, you can actually often measure the rotation of that galaxy. And that's because as this galaxy is rotating some of the gas and stars will be travelling away from us and some of it will be travelling towards us. And that creates an ever so slight redshift on one side of the galaxy and an ever so slight blue shift on the other that you can detect with a very accurate spectroscope. And if you know how big the galaxy is and you've measured its rotation, you know what force is required on that gas and stars to keep it rotating rather than travelling in a straight line and flying off into intergalactic space. And, of course, the origin for that force has to be gravity. Now, the other calculation you can do is you can look at all the stars in the galaxy and you can estimate what mass is in those stars. And you can compare the mass that you need to keep the galaxy rotating with the mass that you see in the stars. And what's really startling is that you find the mass in the stars is not nearly enough to bind the galaxy together you need many times the total mass of the stars to keep this galaxy together. You need some kind of glue binding this galaxy together. And that glue is what we call dark matter, and we think it is just material with mass that is not luminous that we don't see. Thank you, Dominic. But that's all we have for this month's Naked Astronomy. Next month, we've got a special edition looking at ancient and Aboriginal astronomy and exploring how astronomical systems and objects have been represented throughout history. If you've got any questions or comments for us, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But if you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, you can search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and the Science and Technology Facilities Council. <laughs>